0: It's April 23rd, 2009, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Well, April has been a good month for the show. I've had the opportunity to interview two legends of photography. The first was Greg Gorman, which you heard from in our last episode. And today we have Douglas Kirkland. Sometimes the photo gods just choose to be generous. I've met a lot of photographers of the last three years, all of which have inspired and enlightened me with both their work and their words. Today is no different. I count myself especially lucky today because this is actually the third opportunity that I've had to share time with this wonderful photographer, and each time he has been amazingly gracious and sincere. You might think that a man with his reputation and career might be aloof or distant, but Douglas is anything but. He is as passionate and as in love with what he does as when he first picked up the camera. I can only hope that when I'm 74 that I'm as creative and prolific as he is. But before we start, I'd like to ask you for a favor. I've been working hard trying to get the word out on the show, and I'd love to solicit your help in doing so. There are over 3,000 of you that listen to this show every two weeks. And if you haven't already, I'd ask you to post a review on the iTunes store to help improve my ranking and help find new listeners. Also, if you have a blog or newsletter, please mention the show and let your friends know we're here. I would love to double the listenership to the show before the year is out, and I believe that with your help, we can make it happen. But now, it's showtime. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Douglas Kirkland. Well, Douglas, thank you for uh, welcoming, welcoming me into your home again. It's, it's wonderful to see you again in. here, Bryn X. Um You know, I was writing, I was writing um, st- some stuff this morning. And the question came up is, is as to why, why we photograph. And the sentence I wrote was along the lines of, I take photographs because I have a sincere belief that the way I see the world is unique and beautiful, and I want to share it. Okay.
1: I, I've thought about that same thing myself. Okay. Because um, I I'd give lectures in different places different times, and I thought, I wanted to get to the essence, the core of why I want to do this. And I, I'd say it's, it's a great similarity what, to what you probably came up with, as you just stated there. Um, what I decided is, a thought a lot about it, quite deeply, and I thought, well, why am I a photographer? And I thought, if it came down to a few words, starting right back when I was a kid, 14, to using my camera, to this time today when I'm in my mid-70s, I'm 74, you know, 60 years later, why am I a photographer? And for me, uh, I decided, again, it goes back to the origins of it all, because I wanted people to see things as I saw them. I wanted to show them what I saw, what I thought was important. And I suppose part of that is egotistical, but there's also a great pleasure in doing it. And Mm -hmm. it's, in a sense you get excited about it and and what you see and sometimes you show people things that they don't really see they can be walking past a building or a beautiful forest or might uh, have a friend or their wife or husband or kids and if I come in with my camera and I can interpret them in a different way sometimes it will bring a different sensation to them and uh, it's, it's again it's my interpretation it's my Way of seeing people and places, and frankly, mine has been a very positive one because I like people, and I love beauty, and I, and, I, and I, of course, journalistically, uh, I am in, in recent years done a lot of uh, photojournalism. But I started way back in in the uh, early '60s at Look magazine, and later at Life magazine in the '70s, uh, doing photojournalism, and uh, that it was a way of showing events and places and people as I saw them and my interpretation it's all very exciting stuff i think
0: we both say that yeah there's something about when you're when you're a child and you discover something you can't help but want to be able to share it with someone and i think a lot of us end up losing that as a, as a part of of growing up and i think that you speak to that that whole idea of that that whole spirit of wanting that human need to be able to discover something and immediately share the wonder of it with someone else. And you've discovered a great way to do that with a camera.
1: You express the pleasure of what you see and show it to others in in you, your way. And hopefully they find a joy and a pleasure in it as you do. And that's, for me, the core of why I'm a photographer.
0: Yeah. I think one of the struggles is, is, is learning how to get past the mechanics of of, of the camera and I think that's one of the things that, that stifles a lot of people and frustrates them because they have a sincere desire to be able to get that want to get it across but they find they have so many obstacles that are often in the way sometimes it's it's related to the camera sometimes it's related to their own inability to get past their own sort of, you know, self-imposed boundaries or restrictions so, so how has that process been for you and how has it changed over the years because I think I think everyone experiences it It never really goes away it's always there because you're always having to learn more and and push yourself harder so how how have you dealt with it
1: well I've been doing this for more than 50 years now and uh, closer to 60 now almost and uh, how do you get around the technical aspects of photography well to begin with as a kid I grew up in an atmosphere, and my father loved photography, although he wasn't a photographer. But his idea was that uh, the people working uh, for newspapers, using running around with cameras like a 4x5 speed graphic, which I eventually started using myself, shooting flashbulbs, film holders, all of that, they were the ones that had an ability to take pictures, and they refined their skill to such a degree that they could take a picture very quickly. And never miss it. It would always be in focus. It would always be sharp. And uh, I grew up very much with that demand upon myself, uh, self self-imposed, I must say, because I wanted I wanted to, to acquire the skills that I knew some of the great photographers had. And uh, I, you know, it's interesting. I remember reading something in Popular Photography many years ago. They they spoke about a particular photojournalist uh, I don't can't tell you at this moment who, which one he was because there were many that might have classified in this way but they said he could take a picture in such a way it was almost like the sleight of a hand artist. It was almost like the the camera was in his hand in a way that with an ease and uh, ability to make it fast and subtle and not imposing itself on anybody that he got wonderful images he it could have been a she but this happened to be a he in this case but that was for me uh, a re- really a desired capability that i wanted to develop and i think i did do that to, to a large degree it was a lot of uh, learning caring and i give you another example whenever i have gotten a new camera uh through the years i've had many of them uh there's a great joy in having this new piece of equipment and uh some of the early ones were very, very um, elementary, very, essentially box cameras but I still enjoy them and I would, as a young kid, I would look through the viewfinder and imagine different images without taking pictures even. Mm -hmm. I was handling it a lot and uh, I must say that usually, traditionally uh, to this day, actually, when I get any new camera I carry it for, if it's a, a camera that can be carried easily for a number of days uh, just to get a feel of it making it part of me or if it's a larger camera like medium format or bigger uh, I leave it up on a tripod or nearby so I can handle it I want to have a touch I want to be at one with it Mm -hmm. because what I try to do is to take that technical barrier away uh, not by indifference to it but refining my ability and understanding and feel of it to such a degree it, it would appear to most people to be working itself. Yeah, That's not that I don't know what's there, but I do. Now, what's happened, in my opinion, is uh, actually it's all been so simplified from the early days because stop and think of it. We used to have to focus in different ways very carefully. Still do on some cameras, but you, you, there was no such thing as autofocus many years ago. It was a dream, and no one mm-hmm. ever thought it could really ever happen. And exposure. Well, we used to carry an exposure meter and uh, set the ISO, or we used to call it ASA, and set that on the meter. And, and I used to use uh, different meters. I my first meter was called a Weston meter, and then uh, there was a Norwood, which was a uh, uh, that was a a, uh, a meter with a, a little ball on it, and you let the light hit that in an incident meter, and you'd have to set that, and then you'd have to go take those settings that you got on that meter and then set your camera. None of these things are necessary for 90% of work today because what happens with current, especially digital cameras, hey, they set themselves. They focus themselves. You don't have to think as much about these things. And that has a good side to it and it has a bad side to it because the good side is that people can easily take pictures. Now, the, the slightly odd side to that, however, is many people will get a camera, I've seen it, and uh, have very little knowledge of the machine or even photography, and uh, be photographing their family and friends and, and, get, and go on vacation, and always get good pictures, and they suddenly say, mm-hmm. hey, maybe I'm going to become a photographer. Well, you and I know there's much more depth to photography than just getting an automatic camera yeah. and pointing it at, uh, at people and objects and places. And, um, and, and so it's both good and bad and, but I'll say one other thing the ability to learn photography today if you really want to learn the technique is much easier than it once was when we had to shoot pictures uh, either process the film and print them ourselves or, or send them to a lab and not get the pictures back to even look at mm-hmm. for frequently for a number of days uh, today you can shoot the picture look at it in the back of your camera I'm uh, speaking of digital, of course, and uh, if it's not right, shoot another one. Yeah. The, only, uh, the only limitation of that is, and I, I've observed this and I think some other people have as well, is the misfortune is that sometimes people take a picture and then start looking in the back of their their camera and getting so connected with it, maybe a better picture, which is right in front of them, Is passing them by Mm -hmm. because because they've closed off. What I do when I shoot digitally, and I do shoot quite a bit, a large portion of my work is digital, although not all of it. When I shoot digital, I take quick checks of the camera uh, just to see where I'm at. But beyond that, I want to shoot the same as if I have film. And I don't have a, if I'm in the studio, I don't have a computer on set because I don't want everybody to be walking over and jumping up and down, saying, "Oh, how great we are!" And even worse still, mm-hmm. if you have a client, hang, have the client say, "Oh, we've got it. Okay, let's go on." So I want to make it as good as I can. And uh, when we are working in the studio, and I did some pictures just last night for some uh, friends from London who were here, and I was working with them, uh, portraits. Uh, I I shot, and as I said just a second ago, I, I would look in the back of the camera once or twice, and I showed. My subject pictures quickly, but I didn't want to get carried away or distracted by that. Uh, when I was shooting film, I used to often get joyed if I had a Polaroid and show the the mm-hmm. subject that Polaroid. I wanted to get them to get excited as I was excited uh, by the image that I, I was able. We were getting together because it's a if you're in portraits, it's a two-person process, or yeah. or if there are more people, it's the photographer is only one of the. The, I mean, it's the subject that really is going to make the picture. If it's a, an individual or a group, they have to be connected. They have to feel the joy and, and reason to really put something out and, again, get back to the camera. So uh, when I'm shooting in the studio uh, with, with digital, I do not have the camera uh, a computer there, as I mentioned. We go and look at the pictures at the end of the session because what the worst possible scenario... I have not had this happen myself, but uh, I talked with somebody about a year ago who was really into the digital world in a commercial studio. And he, he said, I, I'm getting very uh, very frustrated because I have clients who come in, we're doing tabletops, and uh, they want to sit in front of a live screen. And uh, they tell me to turn the camera a little to the right, a little to the left, raise it lower. He says, I'd start to feel like a machine. He said, this isn't why I became a photographer. Mm-hmm. So that's how it can get totally out of hand. I haven't fortunately experienced that. But uh, again, to simplify it in a few words, keep digital. Uh, use, Get the most out of it if you're shooting it. But don't be confined by it. Don't overlook the what's happening. Keep Be a photographer first. Okay. And you can take checks of, of the images if you want. But don't focus on it so much that you are not participating in what's around you, where the great images may be, and even may, perhaps better ones than you already photographed.
0: Yeah. You've made some amazing images during your career, using equipment that, to a greater or lesser extent, a lot of people, other people had access to. But you were able to make some really unique, sometimes iconic images of people. But I'm wondering, do you believe that there was something unique about you, that provided you the opportunity to make those those images.
1: Well, as I get older, and I've I've got uh, thirteen books out now and another one on the way. I look at my work, uh, and uh, w- most recent one's Coco Chanel, uh, three weeks in nineteen sixty-two, and it's been very successful. I shot all in black and white, trix. Didn't use anything but trix, and I used some early Canon flexes. Uh, the very first one the one that was ever made it was came out in 1959 I believe wonderful camera with superb lenses uh, and I had a, a range fighter Nikon with a 28 on it and uh, uh, I look at these images and uh, truthfully uh, remember these are, were taken 50 years ago um, uh, the year was 1962, it was more than 50 years ago and uh I look at them now almost like somebody else took those pictures. That's who I was at the time, and that's what I did. And fortunately, that guy, who was like, I think of him as another individual, did surprisingly good things, especially being young and new and and having, you know, I guess I was into it, but I see myself from the outside. How have I done it? I don't know. It's, It's been, honestly, two or three things, each step at a time, wherever you are in your life. Uh, whatever opportunities you have with your camera, make the most of them. Try to be as good as you can at all times. I've always believed in that. Don't waste the opportunities that you get uh, with a camera. And other aspects of it, don't allow your ego to carry you away, get carried away by it. Uh, Again, when I'm working with people, I don't want to be the, the star, I remember always that they, the person in front of the lens is mm-hmm. the star. And if you can make them feel good and bring a response from them, they will look good. And you, with your camera, as a conduit almost to the film or digital image, will capture that if you want or attain that. And, and it's held in time for forever if you wish it to be and yeah. if they wish it to be. That's exciting stuff. Um the other thing is, uh, it, it keeps changing, and uh, um, you have to keep moving with the technology and get the most out of everything that is out
0: there for us. Yeah, you know when I, I when we had our last conversation, we were talking about whether or not there's a D- Douglas Kirkland style, and I think we were both sort of in agreement that that it's not so much something that we see in the photographs, but in looking at the photographs, I think. And in hearing other interviews and reading about you and, and talking with you, I think your your style is inherent in the way you photograph, if not in the photographs themselves. And I speak to that whole idea of how much love and respect you have for people, not just your subjects, but just people in general. Mm-hmm. And I think that provides you opportunities that other photographers don't. And I think and I think specifically about the story of how you. Um, first shot, Elizabeth Taylor. So why don't you tell the, the listeners that Okay Okay, uh,
1: I was... Uh, uh, I'm going to back up just a step or two b- before Elizabeth Taylor, uh, telling you that I came from a small town in Canada, 7,000 people. I started taking pictures when I was 14. Uh, I photographed babies, weddings, and I tell you to this day, I will photograph whatever is e- exciting. I mean, I don't say I don't do... Uh, babies, or I don't, you know. I, some people, I think, uh, limit themselves. Anyway, I, I did all of these things. I worked in the, for the small newspaper. I've worked in camera stores. I've done everything connected with the photography. This is Oscar. Anyway, uh, I've done all these things, and and it, you know, I um, to get to Elizabeth Taylor, I, I am amazingly, in a series of steps, working in different places, got myself to New York, and. Uh, astonishingly, was hired by Look Magazine, which was a very big magazine back in the 60s. Uh, I was in, went there at the beginning of, uh, uh, actually, July of 1960. And um, uh, the, at that time, they had 6 million circulation for each issue. In other words, a lot of people saw those magazines. Picture magazines in the early 60s were huge. Life Magazine was 6 or 7 million. You know, astonishing. In any case, I was hired because they hadn't... Actually, it was myself and one other guy were hired. They hadn't hired a photographer in 12 years. And they decided that it was very important to keep up to date. And believe it or not, a lot of their older photographers were having difficulty uh, shooting color. It was the exposure. They had always been accustomed to black and white. And so they hired me to photograph for two purposes to shoot color and to shoot fashion no celebrities that was my what i was hired for and uh, approximately a year i came in july of 1960, 1960. Uh, in june the following june 1961 uh i was uh here in california set up new york to Pismo Beach, where I was photographing bathing suits, girls wearing bathing suits, for the fashion department of look. And a a phone call came in from my boss in New York, saying, uh, we'd like you to go right over to Las Vegas uh, as soon as you can, because Elizabeth Taylor has told us that she will give us an interview. Now, why was this so special? Well, the world hadn't seen anything of Elizabeth Taylor at that that time uh, in a... a, um, uh, a careful shoot like a, uh, a studio type shoot I'll say or photograph in approximately two years because she'd been ill her husband Mike Todd had died and there were paparazzi pictures but there was really nothing beyond that and uh, there had not been any interviews with her the, the The catch was my boss said she has said no pictures she'll give us an interview but no pictures So, but you go and see what you can do so I, I, I went over and met the the movie editor, whose name was Jack Hamilton, a great guy whom I had a great affection for and worked with for many years after. This was my first opportunity to work with him. And he was a very really nice guy. And he uh, was gentle with, with everybody, certainly the people whom he was interviewing and, and everyone else. And he uh, interviewed Elizabeth in a very wonderful way and she was very comfortable even though she had not given an interview as I say for a couple of years And uh, but I kept totally quiet because uh, as a photographer you don't want to interfere with, with the story that's being gotten and, and also the understanding was there would be no pictures at the end of the interview I went up to Elizabeth and she wanted to be called that, not Liz the public always called, liked to call her Liz but she really preferred Elizabeth. So I went up to Elizabeth, and uh, she was so sparkling and beautiful at that time, young. And not the Elizabeth Taylor you may think of today, but she was like a jewel with these wonderful bright, as they were often described as, uh, simple, bluish-purple eyes, you know, and uh, just so incredibly pretty. And I, I, the only thing I could do is I took her hand and I looked into those eyes, and those beautiful eyes, and uh, with respect said, I took her hand I, to shake it, and I said, Elizabeth, it's been very nice meeting you. And I let a beat go by, and I said, you know, it's still holding her hand. I said, you know, I'm new with this magazine. Could you imagine what it would mean to me if you'd give me an opportunity to photograph you? I said it as simply and as clearly as I could. And that was the bottom line for me. I had nothing else I could offer mm-hmm. or propose. She thought for a moment and said, okay, come tomorrow night at
0: 8.30. I
1: did. <clears throat> we made photographs that were the pictures that launched my career photographing celebrities. And um, the, the uh, it was my first cover on Look Magazine. It also ran on L Magazine, Stern, ran all over the world. And... Um, Ultimately, the writer incorporated me into his story, how I had done that, and mm-hmm. how the session had gone. So that's how I got started. And that was in June. In September, I started working with Judy Garland. I, I traveled with her for a month, because that's the way the big picture magazines did it in those days. I went to Washington, D.C., to Toronto. And you I have know, that wonderful
0: image of her up on the wall with yes, it's here.
1: Yeah, well, I just... Anyway, I went out to all these places, including... went to Berlin when she, they opened Judgment in Nuremberg, and I had an intimacy with her, having spent that much time. And uh, the last day I worked with her, uh, it was in the Look Studio in New York, uh, to make a cover picture. And... uh Judy, I'd watched her enough to understand quite a bit about her. She could knock a crowd dead with the power of her music and and, showmanship or showpersonship, if you want. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it could be 500 or 1,000 people out there. And she owned the house Mm -hmm. with that special ability she had. They loved her. But the reality was, uh, well, I'll give you an example. In Toronto, I saw her knock them out like that one night and and then the next morning we went to the airport and she was taken to the plane in a wheelchair. So that, there were two sides to Judy. I mean, she had given so much for her performance. Mm. Now, the day we shot in the Look Studio, uh, we started with traditional pictures, photographed her with uh, oh, different different types of pictures. But it, as, as time went on, toward the end, I said to her, Judy... I've watched you and admired you as you work, but I realize there's another side. It's not all jumping and happy, as your music generally is. There's a very sad and hard side of what you do. And I, I said I'd like to get a picture that would show some of that. And I put quiet music on to set a mood, and I always try to keep the mood uh, mu- music for me has been always been very helpful. Also, uh, how do you talk with people on, on things like this? If you want, if you're with a rock star, you may be screaming, but if you're with Judy Garland, who, whom you want to get a quiet picture of, you speak gently and uh, and with love and care. And that's what I did, and uh, so. She agreed, and we set forth to make a, a picture, a quiet picture. And at a certain time, as and I was talking with her about different events I'd seen, and uh, the hard aspects of her life that I'd learned about, you know, growing up here in, in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, we'll say, uh, and being manipulated by the studios, being pushed as a young kid to work more than she should have because the... Uh, the studio heads just saw dollars when they saw her because mm-hmm. when they put her up on the screen anyway that, they, she was exploited in simple terms and we talked about this and at a certain point she was like two yards in front of my camera she started to, to really cry and that's the picture you have there it was done with a Hasselblad I had a 250 lens on the camera and uh, very simple but again it's relationships because that's ultimately in portraiture for me what photography is about, yeah. and I repeat once more, it's the individual sitting in front of the lens, not the photographer. You're simply a conduit. You're you're there to bring it into the camera. If you care about it as I do,
0: yeah, you know, it's about that inherent trust that has to exist between the photographer and and the sitter. Um, you know, Avedon talked about. That um, they talked about it in, in similar terms, but, but he always emphasized his control over over how the person is perceived. He didn't really see it as a, uh, a collaboration. It was like this is the clay from which I make, you know, my art. But I know, see I,
1: it as a, I, I have enormous respect for, for Richard Avedon. When I knew him, and I huge respect. I love his work. There's one of his books sitting right here in front of us. Uh, and there are many others around here because I, I think he was a genius. But at the same time, I see it as a collaboration, and and I don't, I will, I, I don't like to think of it as manipulating. I will set a, a, an atmosphere, but I don't try. I don't, I don't want my ego to come into it so much that I think that I am the genius that makes it happen. Uh, that's not how I think. I think you know. I think. Another thing is I think you're only as good as your last picture, or your last shooting. Uh, people will look at what I've done and say, oh, great, great, great. And I love that. There's no question. That it's flattering. Who wouldn't like it? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I close the door and say, okay, Douglas, if I've been shooting, I say, what did you do right today? What did you do wrong? You can yeah. learn from both of them. And I, it's a continual learning process. as most things in life are if people want to get the most out of, of out of whatever they whatever they do and that includes not just photography but whatever you're doing You and I I always want to give the most I can and be as good as I can because if you don't there's no use doing it and the joy of accomplishment when you know you've really done your best that is a, a wonderful high yeah. and photography has brought me that many times in my life it brings me that on a regular basis when I'm shooting
0: it's it's interesting when you think about what we were talking about at the beginning in terms of having that moment where you see something wonderful and you want to share it with someone mm-hmm. But then when your subject is another human being you know it's part of your ego is involved because you're saying this way this particular way that I'm seeing this person, that I'm revealing this person, is is what excites me, and I, and I want to share it with you. Which may or may not be how that subject maybe sees themselves, mm-hmm. you know. And being comfortable with making that choice as an artist is, is probably a necessary necessary part of mm-hmm. of, uh, of of being a portrait photographer. Mm-hmm. You know, and for some people, they, they, they're they intimidated by the idea of, of being able to say, make that determinative statement. It's so. interesting,
1: by the way, that I find a lot of people, young photographers who have worked with me, some of them, many of them have become very good photographers, but so many of them come to me and they say, oh, I like to just do tabletops, or I like to do... Um, they're afraid of people, which is odd. Uh. And usually, during the course of a year or two when they're working here, they... Usually in the course of a year or two that they are working with me, they find a way of putting that aside, because uh, it isn't difficult if you're organized and you know your equipment. It's really you and the subject, you're talking together, and they see that and they understand that. But... Many people feel intimidated, uh, and uh, they feel like uh, something so uh, volatile is working with somebody. They mm-hmm. they think of it that way, I don't, but they, they feel uncomfortable with it. They can't control it. They can't lock it in. And uh, part of that, the course to avoiding feeling like that is having being at one with your equipment. If you know your equipment and know how to allow, make that work for you completely... Then you can give the concentration to any individual sitting in front yeah. of your lens.
0: And there's a certain part of nervousness and anxiety, at least I know I have every time I, I photograph someone, and it never, never completely goes, goes away because I, I want so much to be able to get something from a moment. But sometimes that nervousness, that fear, can be a big part of the shoot. And I'm thinking about the shoot that you had with Marilyn Monroe. You know, when you were very young in your career, and and you had that opportunity to basically, you know, be alone with her, and it was just you, her, and the camera. And you've talked about in the past about how nervous and excited you were at, at the opportunity. Talk to us about about how that how those feelings contributed. To the images that you ended up making well, of her.
1: One thing I, I'd like to say, if some, if if there's a photographer listening here that uh, feels some anxiety when they he or she starts shooting or, or looking forward to to a shoot f- photo session, uh, is be calm, enjoy it, and remember you're going to relate to people. Try and look them in the eye. Try to be comfortable with them. Don't try to steal a picture. Try to create it with them. I mean, certain pictures in the world have to be stolen. Maybe certain news photos or certain street pictures have to be stolen, if you want to call it that. Maybe people don't like to call it that, but in a sense, that's what it is. But if you're really working on a, on a one-to-one with somebody, or a group of people even, uh, it's, again, the relationship. Now, anyway, in any case... That let's go back to Maryland. I had great uncertainty about myself secretly, and what had happened is uh, I, this was again in that first year at the second year, actually at look magazine. I' arrived in 1960 in July, and this was this was the following November, I mean not like about eight months later, no excuse me, not eight months, a year plus eight months later. So uh, I was still comparatively new there, but I had sold myself, and I'd had some accomplishment, in, starting with Elizabeth Taylor and uh, others. And uh, But uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things I did is calm myself somewhat by saying, I've, got, I've done this, and I handled these things. Uh, I'm sure I can do this. But the other side of it, I, I, I said to myself, quietly, secretly, have I oversold myself? Maybe I'm in above my head here. And I want to just tell you that if you are a shooter or photographer or somebody who loves taking pictures, you too may have similar feelings at, at, at some time or other. But just say to yourself, I know I can do it. And I say to you, pace yourself. Just breathe deeply. Do it with uh, uh, careful thought and and... and, and and participation and you can do anything. And, uh, with Marilyn Monroe. So here I am eventually left alone with her in a room. She said she wanted to be alone with me, myself and, and my camera, uh, my assistant had been kicked out and everything. And, uh, it was very exciting. It was very sexual in, in many ways, but my job was to get pictures. And, um, I did get through it all, you know, and, uh, you can do so much if you feel, have a positive feeling, and uh, I keep saying always, love photography, love what you're doing, and feel, have a security about yourself, knowing what you've accomplished. It may be in photography, or may it be in something else you've done in your life, that you have the strength to go through so much if you really concentrate on it. It's called believing in yourself. That's really what it is. Mm -hmm. And so much of that, of photography, is that, if you have a moment of insecurity. And what I really want to say is, truthfully, we all have moments of insecurity. Even today, when I am going to, for the last 18 years, I photographed a a cinematographer or a director for a look, excuse me, for for Kodak, for a series called On Film. Those are wonderful black-and-white portraits. And it's a, it's been a wonderful uh, project to have. Imagine a portrait, one of them per month uh, for the last 18 years. It's quite uh-huh. an archive of, of the great cinematographers and occasions directors. Uh, I, so I, even today, when I do have done all of these, I still I want to learn as much about them before I, I meet them. Uh, we I go on the Internet and learn about them. Uh, because I, I want to be with them. And I'm, I mean, I want to be able to talk with them. I want to feel comfortable with them. What odd characteristics do they, might they have? And what films have they made? Who are they? Who are they? They care about people. And I'm giving you that example with that. But the interesting thing is, I still have an edge just before I start working. And the way I work is most of them are done in our studio. Uh, oh, I do go on location, but I keep things available and at a minimum because what I do when they come in, uh, I like to sit and talk with them for a short while, and uh, feel comfortable with them. Sometimes have a cup of tea or coffee, and uh, and then we we go back and I, I like to bring things together, backgrounds and, and and even lighting, pretty spontaneously because I want to. I want it to relate to them. I want it to reflect who they are. Most of them I have not met before, some of them I had have, but those whom I have not met, I, I want to interpret them uh, as much as accurately as I can, and I don 't want to have a locked in process that yeah. says, says I can only do it this way. And Another thing is sometimes they will bring as many subjects will, a whole stack of clothes. Uh, and say, what do you want me to wear? You know, the first thing I do is look at whatever somebody arrives in because normally that's something they feel comfortable in. And uh, if they say, oh, I don't want to wear this. This is just an old shirt. It's, it's not important. Uh, but pick something here. So the next thing I say to them is two things. What is your favorite and what do you feel most comfortable in? And again, it's all about the people, uh, mm-hmm. the subject, and in doing all of this, I must say that my uh, my anxiety drops. And it certainly dropped with Marilyn. I mean, uh, that was a very big deal for me. And probably of all the people I photographed, I'm remembered more for my pictures of Marilyn than any other individual. But it's been quite a formidable list of, uh, of subjects through the years. Mm-hmm. I, there's no question of that. And uh, again, I'm often r- related to work of uh, celebrities and entertainment but I do all, all types of work, I mean uh, I've uh, worked with publications doing a wide variety of work because my first love is photography not chasing movie stars, yeah. I mean I, I have photographed a lot of celebrities as I say and I enjoy that but I also enjoy, I you know I, I photograph a wedding occasionally for friends
0: And if it works well and I
1: I know I've gotten pictures, I'm happy about
0: that. We were you talking about, before we started the interview, about you going back to film and using a large format? So how has been returning to that tradition uh, been for you?
1: When I was very young, at one time I worked in a commercial studio and I worked with an 8x10 camera all day long photographing products. The camera was called a Deardorf. It's a wonderful wooden camera that was. The first of these cameras were made in the twenties, 1920s. So it's been around quite a while, and uh, and they made them until the well into the early nineties. And unfortunately, they're not made anymore. But they're beautiful objects to look at. Now, okay, I I have great capability with modern digital cameras, as we all do. I mean, they are so good, and uh, we used to look for, toward large format cameras to get sharpness. Well, as a rule, we don't need to do that anymore because the technology has evolved to such a degree that, with my one D S Mark III Canon, or or my five D Mark II Canon, or any of the you know the cameras that are out there are really good, and you can get such wonderful definition and everything. We're not searching for definition anymore. So you might say, why the big camera? Okay. But why the eight by ten camera? Why did I want to start using that again? Well, it's interesting because I want to keep challenging myself. I want to get a different look. uh the digital camera and what I can do with it and what everybody can do with it has gotten so good. I fear a sameness coming in, a sameness of how we look because we can use these cameras well and they're extremely good. They really are. Why then trip over to use these uh, we could say, in some ways, people would say out-of-date type pieces of equipment because it gives you a different look. It imposes different um, limitations and very different disciplines on you as a photographer as well as the subject. Because when I use the Dorf, which I've I've just been shooting with it, I shoot with it all the time now. I usually, if I'm doing a portrait session, if I possibly can do it, I shoot with a digital camera, and then at one phase in the in the in the set in the shoot, I get the eight by ten out. When I shoot for Kodak, I'm using an RZ Mamiya six seven and roll film because I need to shoot faster. And the reason those those ads have all been done with digital. Or excuse me, take that back with film mm. because the name of the film series is called on film. So it's only appropriate that it be shot on a Kodak <laughs> film, but in any case, um, so getting back to my use of the large camera. So uh, I was actually uh, going off to Australia to work on a film called uh, Australia uh, a couple of years ago, and it was going to be wonderful. It was going to be the Outback. It was wonderful, and I and I had all my usual digital canons, and which are great. And then I decided it was a comment my wife Francoise mentioned it, and then I also felt good about the idea, why not take the eight by10 to photograph some, some of the Aboriginal people out there? And uh, I got some wonderful images to be make a long story short, uh, in a, with a very traditional way of doing things, because it's like historically putting yourself back in time. And when you do that, you have a different persona. And the people in front of your lens do too. They may be aboriginals, or they may be mm-hmm. uh, your friend down the block. Uh, why are they different? Why do they look different? Because with a view camera, especially a large view camera like this, where you you have to you open the lens up and you take a black cloth and put over your head, and, and then you see the image inverted. And you focus everything and make any adjustments you want. And when you feel you've got the picture perfect then you close the shutter and put a film holder and take the slide off and click the, the shutter. And that's what you have to do each time. Now, in the process of doing this, there's several minutes involved before you can take a picture. And in if you have a subject standing in front of you, they take on a different look, a different feel when they have had to remain in one position. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the joy of it because you get this wonderful look and... Uh, uh, it's 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 very exciting because again we've gotten so capable with the modern digital cameras that that's gone as far as we can go with it. Yeah. And I use it all the time and I enjoy it and I love it. But I wanted to stretch in some other way, you know, because stretching is part of the joy of of exploring, to, exploring and and getting better, getting as good
0: as you can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, the whole idea of the fact that you're having someone standing there for minutes is like Initially, they stand there. And there's a physical tension that happens almost immediately, which you capture if you're shooting a digital camera because you immediately take the photograph. But if it's taking you minutes to get ready, slowly their body tends to relax, their face relaxes. Precisely. So by the time you're ready to take the image, their body language, their facial expression, that that tension that initially is there, is sort of gone. And then if you're just patient enough, you can just wait for that moment where that... Telling gesture or expression happens, and exactly. you can make your photographs.
1: And the, another thing that I love about it is you have a, this incredibly shallow depth of field, and you can't match, match, match that optically with anything else. You know, it's it's interesting. A lot of young photographers have said to me, Why do you bother using that? Why don't you just get a, a you know, very fast lens? I've got a 1.285, and I can do that. Uh, it's not the same. It's just not the same. But the even more significant aspect of it is what you just mentioned: the 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 different feel that comes across people after a minute or two of remaining in one position, usually standing, but they may be seated. And of course, they can't move closer or further after you close after you focus, or you'll have an out of focus picture. So you have to ask them to, with uh, politeness and discipline, not move. I I usually say. I've got one centimeter here, and if you move a, qu- or a quarter of an inch, if you move that quarter of an inch, we won't have a good picture. Mm-hmm. And uh, by telling them that, they usually get the
0: idea. With with um, your recent exhibition you had at the Annenberg Space of Photography, um, you've you had opportunities to be exhibited, you know, throughout and, and, and to publish the books for you. What's it like for you every each time you get to see your work, you know, up on a wall, and and see people milling about, looking at you know at a career's worth of of work? Does that ever get old for you?
1: Having my work uh, displayed, and and, and I've been very very lucky because uh, recently we've made a list, and I'm astonished how worldwide how how many exhibits we've had around the world from. Australia to Moscow to Tokyo to, it goes on and on to New York and Paris and Rome and and uh, most recently uh, in uh, before the Annenberg we had this extremely big uh, show in in Italy in Milan at a place called the Triennale where they had pictures. Uh, it was a very special event. It's it's an enormous museum, and they did. Uh, Vanity Fair Italy were having their fifth year anniversary and I had my five decade anniversary and uh, they made this huge show called uh, the Fab Five and uh, they had some, some images in there 20 feet wide which is extraordinary some mm-hmm. of my pictures blown up that much from incidentally from 35 millimeter and they looked incredible with modern technology uh, and then of course the Annenberg Space for Photography here in Los Angeles. This is so special because what is, there's a very special meaning to this place. Uh, Wallace Annenberg, who's the, the, the lady who really put this into action and made it happen, uh, is uh, she was in a very, and they, they have endowed many different uh, charities and uh, entities in, in America very generously. I mean, it's one of the the major institutions. Uh, She has chosen to want, she wishes to, and she is certainly on the way to doing it, making Los Angeles a very major center for still photography. Now, the world knows about Hollywood, Los Angeles, in movies, but she wants to put Hollywood and, not Hollywood, but Los Angeles on the map to just as great a degree for still photography. And that's what this very special space for photography has been created
0: for. Hmm. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask a photographer to suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover. And it can be anyone from current or past, uh, someone you've long admired or someone whose work you've recently discovered. So who would that be for you and why?
1: Well, I think of it's interesting. I, I, I i give you spontaneous answers at which you are honest. And uh, My first answer is I can think of a number of great photographers whom I have a great respect for. And I think there are young photographers and there are established photographers and people working in many different areas. I will name one and you will have to choose between the two. Uh, name two, rather. You'll okay. have to choose the one. Uh, I have a friend named Gerd Ludwig who's a National Geographic photographer, who's a close friend of mine. And uh, he has done most of his work in Russia, although he works in other places, in Europe. He's off to uh, Holland in a few days. And uh, he's, he's, he's way more than he's here. Same as many of us find ourselves traveling a lot. Uh, he's a brilliant photographer uh, who has great depth and he has so much to say with his photographs. And He's one of the world's great photographers, in my opinion, Gerard Ludwig. And the other person, a woman whom I have enormous respect for, is Lauren Greenfield. And she has Mm -hmm. done these wonderful books on young women. Uh, One of them was uh, Fast Forward, growing up in Los Angeles. And uh, that was her first big book. And today, she's gone on and she's making films as well, documentary films. And doing such a breadth of work uh, doing fashion for the New York Times magazine uh, and work that I would never have expected her to do. She is brilliant and her background Harvard uh, she, then she lived in France for a few years a brilliant woman, she's got two children two kids and a husband and they make it work it's a couple of assistants, they live in Venice so they're, these are great people all having a wonderful story And I think you'd find both of them interesting. Hope you can speak not just with one of them,
0: but each of them. Yeah, I hope so, too. Well, thank you again, Douglas. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. always a pleasure to see you, and and it's a real joy as well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us again. If you have any comments or suggestions, please drop us a line at thecandidframe at gmail.com, post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com, or at the Candid Frame fan page on Facebook. Until next time, this is Ivarian Expirello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at PhotocastNetwork.com. PhotocastNetwork.com